half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward, the light brigade, charged for the guns, he said, into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward, the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell. Boldly they rode, and well, in the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army, while all the world wondered, plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered, then they rode back, but not, not the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell, they that had fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of 600. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. Honor the charge they made, honor the light brigade, noble 600. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. Honor the charge they made, honor the light brigade, noble 600. The Albert Lloyd Tennyson point, Charge of the Light Brigade, recited here by John Wilbur, Carol Burwalk Trainer, Patrick King, producers of the Veterans for Peace Hour, explains what happens when the political and military leadership miscalculate. Solutions to violence in our guest today, Dr. Andrew Basevich, are also concerned about what happens when the political leadership miscalculates, orders troops into battle when the conflict could have been resolved via peaceful means. Welcome, friends. We are... Forward Radio, WFMP LP 106.5 FM. And you're listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. I'm Jamie McMillan here with Jim Johnson. We're your hosts. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may contact us by sending an email to Solutions to Violence 18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. If you enjoyed our last broadcast, we know you're going to enjoy our broadcast today because today is our pleasure to have our and your guest, Dr. Andrew Basevich. Welcome, Dr. Basevich. I'm glad to be with you. Andrew Basevich is Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University. A graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, he received a Ph.D. in American Diplomatic History and at Princeton University. Before joining the faculty of Boston University, he taught at West Point and Johns Hopkins. He's the author of nine books. Among them are American Empire, The Realities and Consequences of U.S. Diplomacy, The New American Militarism, How Americans Are Seduced by War, Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country, and in 2021, After the Apocalypse. His essays and reviews have appeared in a variety of scholarly and general 
interest publications, including Wilson Quarterly, The Nation, The New Republic. His op-eds have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Boston Globe, and the Los Angeles Times, among other newspapers. His latest in the publication, World, October 5th, 2021. Professor Bashevich's area of expertise includes American diplomatic and military history, U.S. foreign policy, and security studies. Welcome again, Dr. Bashevich, for joining us in our search for solutions to violence. Again, glad to be with you. Oh, Andrew Bashevich, let's start with this question. What life experiences have led you to decide to choose a profession in a military career? Well, I was born in 1947, right at the beginning of the Cold War, right after World War II. Uh, Both of my parents were World War II veterans. Our family's Catholic. We grew up in a very traditional uh, household informed by traditional values. And I think that probably predisposed me uh, toward the idea of, of serving the country. Certainly in a family where both of my parents were veterans, I grew up believing that military service was important and and honorable, and that for the most part, the country engaged in military undertakings that were justified and appropriate. I don't necessarily think all those things today, uh, but that's that's the way it looked to me as I was growing up. What was the greatest influence do you feel uh, in fashioning your professional choice in the military? You mean, why did I go to West Point? Or any other influences on your professional career? Well, I mean, I, you know, when I graduated from high school in 1965, I graduated from a Benedictine high school, strongly influenced by the monks, not, not that they were militarists by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that I was persuaded with regard to the importance of service. And as I said a moment ago, I viewed military service as important and honorable. I had other options besides the military academy. But the military kid, I grew up in the Midwest, by the way, the military academy was out east in New York State, up the river from uh, New York City. And, and as, a, as a Midwesterner, I, I fancied that, you know, all things sophisticated and glamorous were, were out east. So I kind of wanted to go to school in the east. West Point was, uh, quote unquote, free. I mean, it's, you didn't pay any tuition, room and board, but of course you paid with five years of, of mandatory service. Uh, but I think all of that together persuaded me that that was the right place for me to prepare myself to, you know, to move into adulthood. I, I think that the choice that I made was uh, wrong. I think I would have been far better off in retrospect. I would have been far better off going to a civilian college and getting an education alongside my my civilian peers, rather than going to this rather unique uh, environment that that is the military academy. That's just interesting. What then were some of your priorities uh, in the earliest time of your career in the military? If if you were not that enamored with uh, West Point education, uh, well, I mean, one priority was getting married. I got married a year after I graduated from West Point. Uh, another priority was not getting killed in Vietnam. I spent a year in Vietnam from uh, 70 to 71. Yeah. And, and then I think the other priority was, and I, I did this in conjunction with my wife, trying to figure out where our future lay. You know, what, what were we to do? I mean, I had the choice of getting out of the Army in 1974. We chose not to. Why? In part because we had two children already. 
uh, in part because the army was willing to send me to graduate school in preparation for a, an assignment of teaching history at West Point, in part because in the mid-1970s, the economy was kind of uh, weak. And I have to admit, I did not have a lot of self-confidence to, to think that I could you know, venture out into the, the big wide world and, and take care of my family. So the easier thing to do was to, was to stay in. And you know, once you make that kind of interim decision, then the next interim decision to stay in becomes that much easier. So I ended up staying in the, in the army for a total of uh, 23 years, by which time the Cold War had ended. I don't think of myself, my service as centered on the Vietnam War. I served there toward the end. I think of my service as centered on the Cold War. Really most of my time in uniform coincided with the, really the second half of, of, of the Cold War. Okay. So, Andrew Basevich, considering that military background, when did you become concerned about the purpose of the U.S. military actions? Pretty much uh, with the end of the Cold War, certainly as somebody serving during the Cold War, even recognizing that the United States made some monumentally stupid decisions during the Cold War, you know, whether we're talking about Vietnam uh, above all, but, you know, also the, the, the misuse of intelligence capabilities in the CIA, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs, the overthrow of the president of Iran uh, in 1953. Notwithstanding uh, all those factors, I did view the Cold War as on balance necessary. When the Cold War ended, I was taken aback by the fact that the United States pursued a, a, an increasingly aggressive and militarized course and to put it another way, during the Cold War, I thought that we did what we did because we had to. We were faced by the threat of Soviet communism. After the Cold War, the threat of Soviet communism disappeared, and yet we became more belligerent, more inclined to use force. Beginning in December of 1989 with the intervention in Panama, undertaken by George Herbert Walker Bush, that was the first of what became a long sequence of interventions through the 1990s. And then, of course, we get to 9-11 in the post-9-11 period. That's what caused me to radically revise my thinking about the role we had chosen to play in the world. So you were awarded the honor of Berlin Prize Fellow at American Academy in Berlin in 2004. The Berlin Prize is awarded annually to American or U.S.-based scholars, writers, composers, artists who represent the highest standards of excellence in their field, from the humanities and social sciences to journalism, public policy, fiction, the visual arts, music composition. Fellows spent a semester at the Academy's Lakeside Hans Arnold Center, a historic 19th century villa located in Berlin's Wannsee district. For what achievements were you recognized and awarded the Berlin Prize Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin? What were the topics of the study in your semester in Berlin? How was that semester of study influenced you since then? The honest answer is I have no idea why I was awarded that fellowship. It just came out of the blue. It's not something you had to apply for. You get a letter in the mail. Hey, you've been awarded a, a, a Berlin Prize Fellowship. I mean, my wife and I were delighted. She came with me uh, to Berlin. We spent, uh, uh, the weather was lousy, but otherwise we spent really a delightful 
uh, semester there working. And I used the time to work on the manuscript that became my book, uh, The New American Militarism. Had I not received the fellowship, writing that book would have taken a lot longer because I would have been back at Boston University uh, doing my regular uh, teaching duties. So it was uh, a fabulous opportunity uh, that just came my way. I'm sure somebody was behind you know, the scenes pulling strings on my behalf, uh, but I never knew who did it. If, if I did, I would certainly tell them how grateful I am. It was a wonderful semester. Well, that book was published in 2004, right? Uh, Dr. Basevich, you composed the book, The American Empire, The Realities and Consequences of U.S. Diplomacy. That book was published in 2002. Chapters entitled Myth of the Reluctant Superpower. What do you feel is the myth of the U.S. as a superpower, and why do you refer to it as a reluctant superpower? Well, I think to oversimplify the standard narrative of U.S. foreign policy is one that says the United States of America chose a path of isolationism until, lo and behold, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, at which point the United States chose to play a role of global leadership. There was this remarkable transformation. Uh, I've long since concluded that that's nonsense, that in fact, from the very creation of our republic, we have been an expansionist nation. We have sought by hook and by crook, to expand our power, to expand our reach, to increase our wealth, uh, to increase our influence. And we did that through all sorts of means. You know, we, uh, we, we, we purchased uh, the Louisiana Territory and Alaska. We basically snookered Spain in order to acquire Florida. We, we provoked a war with Mexico so that we could bring Texas into the Union, and of course, California uh, and the Southwest. We went to war against Spain in 1898 under the guise of liberating Cuba. The war quickly became an enterprise intended to seize territory. For example, Puerto Rico uh, and the Hawaiian Islands, and, and most incredibly, the Philippines, 7,000 yes. islands located like 6,000 miles west of, of, uh, of San Francisco. So the narrative is one of, of opportunistic expansionism. I don't think that's necessarily like a great sin, but I think it's important for us to be honest about the course of American history. When we emerged after World War II as the most important, most powerful nation on the planet, it did not simply happen overnight. Uh, it was a consequence of an effort that extended over a century uh, and a half. So I think it is fair Maybe some people view it as provocative, but I think it is fair to describe that long arc of U.S. policy as essentially imperialistic. The American empire uh, that I write about in that book, doesn't, it's not the same as the Roman empire, the British empire, the French empire, anybody else's empire. We, we have a different sort of empire. We tend to prefer informal control rather than colonization, although there have been episodes of, of colonization. And I was trying to make the point in that book uh, that the first decade of post-Cold War policy, uh, this is when George Herbert Walker Bush and then Bill Clinton are in the White House, that it was, it was necessary to recognize that this initial post-Cold War thrust of U.S. policy 
marked a continuation of the opportunistic expansionism that was the primary theme of U.S. policy for, for you know, many, many decades prior. That was the first chapter in your book. There, there are eight other additional chapters dealing with policy, strategy, gunboats, proconsuls, different drummers in the war for the Imperium or the Empire. Would you like to elaborate on any of those, uh, those topics? No, I think, I think it'd be better if you guys asked me specific questions and I uh, tried to answer them. Excellent. Okay, so here's a question, Dr. Bisevich. The historian Walter Hicks, in his book, Myth of American Diplomacy, makes a case that American diplomacy is somewhat mythological, as evidenced by the fact that U.S. military has waged 12 major wars and the American CIA has orchestrated four major covert conflicts during America's 235 years of existence. And you mentioned the imperialistic history that supports uh, U.S. empire. The wars initiated by the United States in Afghanistan and Iraq have lasted some 20 years. Is the U.S. military being used to resolve conflict when diplomacy and negotiations should have been used instead? Should the military brass and enlisted members be concerned over the misuse of the U.S. military forces? Well, they certainly should be concerned because U.S. military has been, I think, uh, egregiously uh, misused, particularly uh, since 9-11. And the two wars that you cite are, you know, case A and case B uh, to sustain that, that proposition. Now, I don't know that it's fair to say, like, you know, we don't have diplomacy. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's closer to the truth to say that diplomacy is a handmaiden uh, to, to military policy. It's not, it's not the case that the United States doesn't engage diplomatically uh, with other countries. We do. I think it is the case that in comparison with, with most other countries, uh, maybe all other countries, we favor the use of military power as the most expeditious means to solve problems. Uh, you know, when we, when we think about the response of the George W. Bush administration to 9-11, I think people in that administration genuinely believed that by embarking upon the so-called global war on terrorism, that the United States would be able to genuinely deal effectively with the threat of terrorism and bring about a, a more stable world. Now, that belief was utterly wrongheaded, and the results, I think, are before us. But nonetheless, uh, I believe that's what, what was the inspiration. If we could look inside the, the head of George W. Bush and his principal lieutenants. Talk a little more about the misuse of, of U.S. military. Uh, what has its purpose become and what should its purpose be? When and where did the U.S. political leadership began taking the country down the wrong path? It began when the Cold War ended and when we uh, assumed that we lived in a unipolar world, when we assumed that the United States military was supreme uh, in the planet, uh, when we assumed that we could put military power to work to solve problems. I mean, the invasion of Panama in December 1989 might be an example. You know, we got rid of Noriega, and the the campaign was uh, was very brief. Uh, we we got out. Uh, Panama is not, I suspect, I haven't been there at least not lately. It may may not be a paradise, but it's a relatively stable place and doesn't cause problems to us. 
So if every subsequent intervention had, had unfolded like Panama, we'd probably be in pretty good uh, shape today. But of course, most of them did not unfold like Panama, and in particular, Afghanistan, in Afghanistan and Iraq. So there was a series of false assumptions uh, that informed U.S. foreign policy during the first Bush, Clinton, second Bush, Obama, Trump uh, administrations with regard to, to military power. And those false assumptions have cost us, have cost us dearly. So, Professor, the American empire, realities and consequences of U.S. diplomacy addresses the concept of empire building. That's your book that deals with the U.S. currently having 750 military bases installed in European countries, Japan, Philippines, Middle East, and various other countries. Those who oppose U.S. military intervention claim that the U.S. is constructing an empire, uh, as you said. So what's your take on these 750 military bases performing a necessary security function? How does one decide where security stops and intervention begins? Well, I, th- I mean, it's my argument that uh, the prevailing concept of national security identifies threats as things that are way out there way out there in East Asia, or way out there in in Europe, or way out there in the Middle East. And the prevailing concept assumes that the best response to those threats, the best way of dealing with those threats way out there, is by amassing military power and using military power. Uh, That was the logic that prevailed during the Cold War. That's the logic that prevailed after the Cold War. That's certainly the logic that prevailed uh, after 9-11. I think that that paradigm has outlived its usefulness. I think that the, the threats that we should worry about are actually back here. They're not way out there. What are those threats? Well, I mean, it's obvious, really, you know, pandemics, porous borders, economic instability and inequality, an unresolved problem with race, a dysfunctional government, large numbers of our fellow citizens who have lost confidence in the constitutional order, some of which, some number of them, are willing to consider overthrowing the constitutional order in order to benefit one particular individual. It's stuff like that that I worry about. And, you know, maintaining bases in East Asia or Europe doesn't do a heck of a lot to address those problems. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have any foreign bases. But it does mean that we need to, in my, in my opinion, reevaluate our national security priorities and direct more resources to those things that threaten us where we live, and by extension, fewer resources to those things that are way out there that may pose problems, but problems that are not as immediate as the ones that I was just uh, uh, citing. Yeah, well, we now know that the ancient Roman Empire collapsed, not because of an outside threat, but because of internal issues that the government, Roman government, refused to address. So if we've learned anything from history. Uh, I think you're right. We've got to look at the internal problems that are, that are occurring here. So uh, the American Empire, your book, you followed that book with the new American materialism, how Americans are seduced by war in 2005, beginning with the statement, quote, today, as never before in their history, Americans are enthralled with military power. The global military supremacy that the United States presently enjoys and is bent on perpetuating 
has become central to our nation's identity, end quote. So give us, give us a sense of what, quote, enthralled with military power, end quote, and, quote, bent on perpetuating, end quote, means to you. What does those two phrases mean? Well, uh, let, let's, let's begin by understanding that that book's now, what, uh, over 15 years old, and there's been 15 years of military experience that has occurred that has, uh, I think, affected uh, the way Americans think about military power. Uh, certainly, I believe there's still too many of us who are enthralled with it. But I, I, I would say that the militarism that I described back then has, at least to some degree, uh, receded. You know, the, the, the enthusiasm for war uh, that may have existed, for example, at the time of the intervention in Iraq in, in 2003, I think has substantially decreased. But as I surveyed the scene back then, I think I wrote that book, and mostly in Berlin, uh, in, uh, in in 2004, I, I was taken by what seemed to be the uncritical celebration of American military might and by the absence of any serious discussion of the downside and of the costs, uh, whether we're talking about costs uh, in terms of budget or whether we're talking costs in terms of people killed and mangled as a consequence of, of war. That's what I was trying to talk about. So you mentioned, quote, distinctive perspective, end quote, that you took in writing the new American materialism, how Americans are seduced by war. Explain to our listeners what perspective and why is that important for readers to know? What's your perspective here? I mean, you know, it's kind of obvious in a way. I mean, the book is called The American Empire. It was an yeah. effort to try to describe what the American empire consisted of, how it, how it operated, how it worked. And I would emphasize that there too, the passage of time, almost two decades, has, I think, uh, changed, hasn't, hasn't made our imperial aspirations go away, but they, they've been chastened uh, by the negative experiences that we've had, again, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Back in 2002, when that, that book came out, you know, there was, what wasn't my view, but there, there was very, every expectation that the United States had the capacity basically to whip up on any adversary that we encountered. There was widespread confidence that the American, put it simply, the American military couldn't be beaten, couldn't be stopped. Why did we think that? Well, we thought that because we won the Cold War. We thought that because uh, we achieved notable success in uh, Operation Desert Storm. We thought that because we believed that we had an insurmountable leave, uh, lead rather, in terms of, of militarily relevant technology. More recently, we would say, well, that's all nonsense. Again, more recent experiences have found us, uh, I think, less confident about our military capacity, certainly far less confident in the, uh, the capacity of our military leadership and our political leadership uh, when it comes to managing uh, wars, because they haven't done a very good job. And you mentioned that we haven't been very successful here in terms of the conflicts in the Middle East. So begs this question, when the U.S. involvement within the bounds of a foreign power is perceived as aggression, and forces in that country responds with a defensive military reaction, for example, Vietnam, Nicaragua, 
Afghanistan, Iraq, does the U.S. military power provide security or does that power foster aggression against countries that have opposing views to that of the United States? Is that perceived aggression causing defensive military reaction on the part of foreign powers like Vietnam, Afghanistan? Well, I don't, you know, you have to go to a particular cases. I don't know that there's there's necessarily a general rule here. But nonetheless, I'll make a general comment. And that is that, by and large, proponents of war, of American wars, have argued that the use of force will bring stability to the part of the world where we choose to engage militarily, or at a minimum, will will remove incentives on the part of adversaries to misbehave. Unfortunately, what we have found is that the use of force has created instability. You know, if you look back at U.S. policy in the Middle East, going back to uh, 1980, when Jimmy Carter promulgated the Carter Doctrine, creating stability in the region really has been priority number one. There's also talk about you know, spreading democracy and protecting human rights. And some of that talk is probably sincere. But the big thing is bring stability to a region that we believe is important because there's so much oil there. But if you look at the results of U.S. military engagement since 1980 in that part of the world, we haven't brought stability. We've brought instability. I mean, I think Iraq is a very good example, but Iraq's neighbors and, you know, in the uh, Syria or, 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 or different cases like, uh, like Libya, where we, we chose to overthrow the government, somehow expecting that a decent, legitimate regime would, would replace Muammar Gaddafi, when in fact what we got was a protracted civil war. So I think that's the key thing, you know, that, that there's, a, there's a naivete in the quarters, political quarters and military quarters, about how well we can manage the situation that results from U.S. military intervention. And too frequently, we found that uh, we can't manage the situation. And, you know, that ends up having the war go on longer than people expect, having the war cost more than people expect, and leaving a great big mess, Afghanistan being the most obvious uh, case at the present moment. Say, what role do you think the military should be operating in, in other countries? I think, I think military power, again, we'd have to go to cases, and there's going to be exceptions. But I think as a general rule, military power is good to, for defending, deterring, and containing. If, if, if that's what we're trying to accomplish, then I think there's at least a reasonable chance that military can play a useful role. It's when we think that military power can fix problems, can solve things, that's where we tend to go wrong because that leads to the more offensive or aggressive use of military power. And recent events would suggest that we're not very good at that. But could the military fix things in a different way? For instance, uh, something related to the UN forces. Is that a reality? Could that be a reality? Well, I I doubt it. I mean, the UN was created in 1945. And uh, I think most of the evidence suggests that the United Nations is not, is not an effective entity when it comes to providing for international security. It has not prevented wars. There is no United Nations army that, that can be employed against aggressive actions. Really, uh, when it comes to security, 
matters. The UN can't do anything unless there's agreement by the by the Security Council. And of course, the Security Council can't act unless there is agreement on the part of all of the, the five permanent members. That has happened, but it's happened only very rarely. And therefore, as a result, uh, the UN is not particularly useful when it comes to security issues. Okay, useful in all kinds of other ways, you know, dealing with health, dealing with uh, refugees and, and the like, but not, not, not when it comes to security. This is another book of, of yours from 2007. I'm not sure you want to go back that far, but you edited a book entitled The Long War, A New History of U.S. National Security Policy Since World War II. That was a collection of 12 essays. The book is set within the backdrop of understanding a contemporary history and the narrative of a uh, Cold War uh, as one in the same. For our listeners who are not really up on uh, what the Cold War was, would you give us a perspective on that for them? A perspective on what the Cold War was? Right. Well, there's a lot of ways to describe it. I think the most important is that it was a, uh, a competition between the West and the East between liberal democratic capitalism and Marxism-Leninism, between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was a competition that had many manifestations. It was a military competition centered really on the avoidance of World War III, although it was a military competition that ended up breeding conflicts on the periphery. the The center of the Cold War, if you I mean, was divided Germany, was a divided Berlin, was a divided Europe. Uh, And there, U.S. policy, I should say U.S. and European policy, helped to ensure a modicum of stability. Of course, we have to acknowledge that our adversary, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, they also uh, contributed a a modicum of, of, of stability because basically the Cold War in Europe was a, was a static standoff. So there was no fighting uh, in, in divided Germany. There was fighting in other places like Korea and Vietnam and on and on and on. So that's what the Cold War was. The Cold War ended, I would say, uh, because of the manifest shortcomings of Marxism-Leninism. The Soviets and, and other communist nations found themselves simply unable to deliver on the promises to their people. You know, we promised, uh, pr- prosperity. And we delivered, to some degree, prosperity. The United States during the Cold War is the richest country in the world. They promised prosperity, and they didn't deliver. And I think after a period of time, the masses, as we like to call them back then, lost confidence in Marxism-Leninism. And that loss of confidence undermined the integrity of the Soviet empire and of the Soviet Union itself. And, and both of them collapsed then at the end of the of the 1980s. I think that's a that's what the Cold War was all about. Yeah. The year 2008, uh, that brings a new book from you, Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Countries. This book consists of three parts, Nation at War, Warriors, Plight, and Skin in the Game. And this quote comes from your book, quote, indeed, the operative idea, widely understood, even if unwritten, was to avoid apocalyptic encounters so that the ongoing drawdown could continue. As long as the withdrawal of U.S. forces proceeded on schedule, authorities in Washington could sustain 
the pretense that the second Indochina war was ending in something other than failure, end quote. And then again, quote, in the wake of 9-11, as America's self-described warriors embarked upon what U.S. leaders referred to as a global war on terrorism, the bills came due. A civil-military relationship founded on the principle that a few fight while the rest of us watch turned out to be a lose-lose proposition, bad for the country and worse for the military itself, end quote. So what was the cause of and meaning of the resulting, quote, lose-lose proposition, end quote? What do you mean by, quote, the bill came due, end quote? Well, the global war on terrorism was undertaken at a time when both the American people and our political establishment had uh, unbounded confidence in the so-called all-volunteer force. The all-volunteer force is a professional military. All-volunteer force is what the founders of our republic criticized as a standing army. The founders said that a standing army is incompatible uh, with, with freedom, and they opposed the idea of a standing army. We'd fought against the standing army, uh, the British. We, we won our liberty by defeating the British army. And so in the early days of the republic, and really all the way through, until Vietnam, the foundation of the American military system was the belief in the citizen soldier. And it was citizen soldiers who fought all our wars. You know, when, uh, when, when we go to war in uh, 1917, uh, Woodrow Wilson raises up a great big army to go to France to fight against the Germans. When World War II is on the horizon, Franco Roosevelt raises up a great, great army to go fight Japan and go fight Germany. This is, this is the American tradition to rely on citizen soldiers, not professionals, in order to defend, defend our democracy. We abandoned that tradition as a result of Vietnam. We, we opted to create a professional military. And the, the all-volunteer force had some significant teething problems in the 1980s, but by the, by the 1990s had basically uh, matured enough that Americans in government and out of government came to believe that this was a, the right system uh, for our country. And so when the global war on terrorism began, there were high levels of expectation among citizens and in the government uh, that our military forces could handle whatever challenges lay ahead. And if you look at the early returns in Afghanistan and Iraq, it looked like we could win an easy victory in both places. That impression turned out to be radically wrong. As we faced insurgents who were committed to expelling what they viewed as foreign occupiers uh, from their countries. The, it turned out that the American technological leadership didn't matter that much uh, on, on the battlefield. We're fighting uh, opponents that put together IEDs, probably at, for the cost of a, of a pizza. We're looking at opponents that rely on vintage AK-47s. They don't have armor. They don't have, they don't have an Air Force. Uh, but nonetheless, they fight very effectively against these high-tech very skilled American troops. So we find, again, this is particularly the case, I think, in Iraq, when we're looking about the year 2004, 2005, 2006, what we find is we don't have enough troops, don't have enough troops to effectively win in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the deal with the American people by that time is that the American people have no obligation to serve militarily. When we needed to raise an army, I think the, the army in World War II peaked at 12 million, you know, we drafted a bunch of people and they went, they went off to the Pacific and they went off to uh, Europe uh, to do what was, was needed to defeat Imperial Japan and, and Nazi Germany. 
when we needed to have additional troops to go to Iraq, there's no way to get them. So what we found is that we had chosen to create a military system dependent upon so-called volunteers, although economically motivated volunteers, that did not mesh with the wars that our political leaders had chosen for us to engage in. That's what went wrong. And the American people, of course, said, hey, they're not our wars. We're, 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 we, we, didn't, we didn't sign up for all this. And so the American military, in a sense, was left, uh, left you know, hung out to dry. Before I ask this next question, I do want to point out that Vietnam War was fought with a citizen army, but you bet. Uh, historians will tell us we lost that war also. We did. Absolutely. And the, the, that war, the controversy created by that war, the domestic division created by that war, is what persuaded Richard Nixon to jettison the uh, citizen-soldier tradition and to opt for what he chose to call the all-volunteer force. Uh, the Vietnam War was a huge turning point in our military history, not, not simply from the perspective of the conflict itself, but from the perspective of, of leading the nation to, to choose an alternative military system, to abandon the tradition that had informed our military system for the almost previous 200 years. So that system didn't work in Vietnam. So what's the answer to that? It, it... Well, the answer is don't fight stupid wars in Vietnam. I mean, the, the, the war was, was absolutely uh, ill-advised. We did not have essential interests at stake. Reuniting Vietnam was a cause to which the North Vietnamese were absolutely committed. And they were willing to fight and die in very large numbers to achieve the goal of reuniting their country. Preserving the Republic of Vietnam, South Vietnam, may have been important to Lyndon Johnson, uh, but it was not particularly important to the American people. So as the costs of the Vietnam War very quickly began to mount, you know, by mid to late 1965 and continued 1966, 1967, once we get to the Tet Offensive of 1968, nobody in the United States believes that the war is going to be brought to a successful conclusion anytime soon. That's what then dooms the existing military tradition based on the citizen soldier. Andrew Basovich, you are advocating for the return of the draft. No, nope. so if so, Not, I've never said that. No, no, nope. nope. Okay, so that's that's where I, it sounded like you were going here. So that's why. Well, I maybe it sounded like that, but I've never advocated to return the, the restoration of the draft. I don't okay. think that's politically feasible. So, will a military draft? Would a, would a military draft cause a larger percentage of American citizens to pay attention to war waged by U.S. military? Sure. Result in larger anti-war. But, but, but a draft is politically untenable. Ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Okay. Yep. But would it force the political leadership to use diplomacy instead of military intervention? Well, I don't know. I, th- I, I think I think it probably would lead to more restraint in, uh, in the American people. Uh, if we had conscription, and I want to emphasize, I'm not advocating conscription, but if we had conscription, then the average American family would, would more likely to have skin in the game, would, would, would pay attention, would, would, would not allow, let's say, the George W. Bush administration to embark upon the folly of invading a country, Iraq, that had nothing to do with 9-11. There would have been more questions asked, I think, uh, in the lead up to that war. Okay, so if the citizen soldier, you sounds like you believe that that is 
the best way to construct an army here in this country, but you're not, you don't support the draft, what's the answer? I think the answer is a program of national service. Uh, and what that means is that there would be mandatory service of some kind for all young Americans, probably after high school. One option for, for that service would be to join the military, but there would be a variety of other options, you know, Peace Corps, some equivalent of the Civilian Conservation Corps, people, uh, you know, wor- working in senior citizens' homes, teaching teach school, working in child care centers, wide variety of opportunities. But the, but the, the principle would be everybody spends a, a period of service to the country and or their community. Everybody does that. So everybody then has a stake in the country. Everybody earns citizenship, as it were. Okay. Fair enough. So in your book in 2010, Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War, you take this pointed position, quote, my own education did not commence until I reached the middle age. I can fix its start date with precision. For me, education began in Berlin on a winter's evening at the Brandenburg Gate, not long after the Berlin Wall had fallen, end quote. Why was the Brandenburg Gate such a monumental event for you? Well, that was the ultimate symbol of the Cold War. You know, it served as a backdrop for American presidents to make speeches. You know, remember uh, Kennedy's uh, Ich bin ein Berliner speech. Uh, Reagan made a a famous speech there. A lot of photo ops. When the Cold War ended, and of course, the, the wall between East Berlin and West Berlin was dismantled. Shortly thereafter, I, I was still in the army. Shortly thereafter, I took my family on a long weekend to Berlin because we'd never been there. We wanted to see it. Uh, so we were walking around Berlin at night and we decided to walk up to the Brandenburg Gate. And what we saw there, what we found there, there were a bunch of Soviet soldiers because the Soviets had a very large military contingent stationed in East Germany. We found a bunch of Soviet soldiers who were selling medals and bits of military paraphernalia, not weapons, but, you know, hats and pins, wristwatches and the like. Obviously, they were not well cared for, not doing well, trying to find to make a little money on the side. And, and everything they were selling was absolute junk. And, and you got a little bit of an insight into how we had exaggerated, just a glimpse, just a glimpse how we had exaggerated how advanced the Soviets were militarily. They weren't. They were a a backward, technologically backward force. And instead of being 10 feet tall, they were, you know, well, somewhat less. And that was an illuminating moment for me. Gotcha. Yeah. Dr. Vesey, did you explain that the CENTCOM is the United States Central Command, and that command would be in charge of the U.S. Armed Forces. In your article, The Ed Sola Pentagon Command, you had this to say, since its creation, 13 generals and admirals have presided over CENTCOM, 10 of them since 2011, with General McKenzie appointment dating uh, March 2019, have no doubt whatsoever that each of these officers, intelligent, hardworking, and patriotic, did his, his best to accomplish CENTCOM's mission, with a single exception, that not one of them. What was the mission that was not accomplished by CENTCOM? So CENTCOM was created by Ronald Reagan in 1983, I think. You know, we have these regional commands everywhere. We got a European command, we got a Southern command, which is 
calls itself responsible for Latin America. We got an Indo-Pacific command uh, that is responsible for, for Asia. And, and, and the idea of creating CENTCOM would, is that it would be a military headquarters that would, that would oversee US military operations in, in the region, in the greater Middle East, and that by its existence, it would help to create stability. And that has not been the case. I mean, the US military has been significantly involved in that part of the world, basically since the creation of CENTCOM. We've been engaged in some you know, relatively large wars, some of which have lasted a very long period of time, and also a, a series of other smaller interventions and skirmishes. And if you step back and you say, well, how's it going? How are we doing? I think the answer is CENTCOM has failed. Uh, CENTCOM is not enhancing stability in that part of the world. In many respects, this emphasis on, on using the military instrument has backfired. It's created instability. So it seems to me that uh, if, we look, if we reflect back on what CENTCOM has tried to do since 1983 and, and compare that what, to what it has, has actually accomplished, it kind of makes sense to say we need to try a different approach. And I think that begins with disestablishing CENTCOM, and which, which would imply moving away from relying on military power to advance our interests in that part of the world. We have some interests. They're not nearly as, as vital as we once imagined. It's not like we should ignore uh, the Middle East but I think we probably would be well advised to rely on something other than military power to secure our instrument, our interests. What might be those other diplomacy? Ways? Diplomacy. You know, let's engage. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. let's let's take a specific example. There is a as a rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia to determine which of those two countries should dominate the Persian Gulf. We have chosen to side with Saudi Arabia. We sell Saudi Arabia something on the order of three and a half billion dollars of weapons on an annual basis. Saudi Arabia is not a liberal democracy. Saudi Arabia does not share our professed values. So why the heck are we supporting Saudi Arabia? So to me, rather than committing to one side in this rivalry, we would be better advised to strike a balanced position between the two. We're not pro-Iran, shouldn't be pro-Saudi Arabia. What we should do is to try to persuade both of those countries that their interests are best served by pursuing a course of mutual coexistence. Now, they have all kinds of reasons why they don't get along. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But the diplomatic task is to persuade them that whatever those reasons may be, they are of less importance than simply maintaining a modicum of peace and stability in that part of the world. I think that's what we ought to be doing. And, and we know we're not, uh, but I think that's what we ought to be doing. Okay. I'm guessing that the, uh, the assumption is then that the military really does not have a part in the diplomacy. Is that what we're saying? It, it really is separate from the military. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think that at all. I, I think that actually military power and diplomatic action need to be uh, coordinated, done in concert. 
I just think in the particular case that we were just talking about, the, the military instrument hasn't worked. And so there's a need for a new approach. Yeah, that's a conversation I'd like for us to continue. But uh, one other thing we'd like to say, refer to is uh, Samuel Moyn, a professor of law and history at Yale, is an author of a forthcoming book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and, and Reinvented War. Moyn suggests that uh, America's military is moving from all-out war, as he calls it, in a, no, in a no-holds-barred war, to something he calls a more humane war. One believes this is an effort to essentially remove the media attention and American citizen awareness of mayhem, collateral damage, wrecked economies, weapons and supplies, uh, support of terrorist groups. The idea is, is to move war efforts to, to one with drones and distant military action that is remote from the, the, uh, the media and the, the people uh, in the country. What's the problem you see with this? Well, uh, I think Moyne's argument, and I agree with it, is that this emphasis on advanced technology, missile firing drones is a very good example, leads us to believe that we can fight kind of a sanitized war. And the evidence says otherwise. The evidence says we'll still end up killing various non-combatants. We'll just be able to avert our eyes from, from doing that, and that that's a dangerous thing. It's also something that complicates our ability or willingness to confront the moral implications of war. So it's a very good book. Sure, we're coming to the end of our uh, broadcast time then. In closing, would you suggest offer greetings or other sources for our listeners to access for exploring ideas of peace and military you've uh, shared with us today? Did you ask me for readings? I couldn't understand you. Yeah, any readings or other sources for our listeners who might be interested in uh, uh, further exploring what you we've talked about today? Well... Uh, there's a new book that I'm just reviewing by Elizabeth Samet, S-A-M-E-T. She teaches English at West Point. And the book is called Looking for the Good War. Uh, and it's an examination of the way we have chosen to remember World War II and falsified World War II. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's a uh, it's, it's quite, a fine, quite a fine book, and your listeners might want to check it out. Elizabeth Samet, S-A-M-E-T. Our conversation today has been with Dr. Andrew Basovich. We appreciate you joining us as we continue to explore more solutions to violence. Thank you once again for joining us here on Forward Radio, and thank you once again, Dr. Basovich. Glad to have done it. So we also want to thank uh, John Wilburn, Patrick King, and Carol Rewalt-Trainer, producers of WFMP's Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, for their recitation of the Alfred Lloyd Tennyson poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. We want to say thanks to our radio audience for joining us here on Forward Video and Solutions to Violence. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. We air Solutions to Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., Wednesdays at 6 a.m. A program featuring Dr. Andrew Basevich will be placed in our archives November 3rd. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions of Alice program that features Dr. Andrew Basevich. If you would like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Dr. Basevich, you can reach us at the following email address, solutionsofalice18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We are ending here today with the Jefferson Airplane's embryonic journey. 
The guitarist and composer here is Jarmika Conan. I'm Jim Johnson with my co-host Jamie McMillan and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same.